Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, and this is the second entry in my 100 Years of Fascism mini-series. Uh, this is technically episode one, because it is covering the 1920s. Now, I'm using the historian's definition of the 1920s, which means that, you know, if a 1918, 1919, or a 1931 slips in there, you know, you're just going to have to forgive me. Historians operate kind of loosey-goosey when it comes to actual dates, which is something that surprises people. It really shouldn't. This is just uh, how historians actually operate. So I'm going to break this episode down into three parts, talking about the growth of fascism in the 1920s in Italy, in Germany, and then in the rest of the world. Now, Italy is the place where fascism as such, that is, fascism that was called fascism, that self-identified as fascism, originates. The fascist party itself was founded in Italy in the late 1910s by Benito Mussolini, a disaffected World War I veteran who had become originally enamored with socialism and its revolutionary potential, but was ultimately disappointed, in his estimation, by the actions of the Italian socialist organizations. After the war, he turned to Italian nationalism and an extreme right-wing position that drew him a lot of followers, and uh, specifically a lot of other veterans. Now, this is a pretty common refrain when we're talking about the original wave of fascism right after World War I, uh, is that a lot of fascist organizers and a lot of fascist people, like a lot of the people who joined fascist organizations, are those who were involved in World War I or who were military veterans of one conflict or another. The Italian fascist party was motivated in part by what they saw as Italy's being snubbed by the post-World War I peace, although in general the thing to remember here is that fascists are often motivated by what they perceive as an unfair loss of social status by people who should be on the top of society. Now in this case, we're talking about veterans who think that they did very well in this war and so they and their country deserve to be compensated. But in the United States today, for example, this is why we see so many young white men, downwardly mobile economically, joining and getting excited about fascist organizations because they think that they should be on the top of our particular society, and they think that that position has been unfairly stolen from them. In 1921, various paramilitary organizations united as a political party in Italy, the National Fascist Party. Um, which continued paramilitary pressure against the democratic government of Italy, well, the, the democratic monarchy that Italy had at the time. In 1922, 100 years ago, the Italian fascist party staged what they called the March on Rome, a sort of propagandistic attempted coup against Victor Emmanuel III, the king of Italy. Now, as such, the coup didn't really succeed. Uh, the Italian party was not granted total control of the country. However, they did succeed in pressuring the powers that be in Rome to grant them effective control over the country. They, they, they became the parliamentary majority, and they were able to enact a lot of laws. Specifically, uh, one of these is called the Acerbo Law, named after the legislator who proposed it, which effectively granted the Italian fascist party a supermajority in the Italian parliament. By 1924, the supermajority was cemented with the last democratic election that Italy saw until after World War II. 
And by 1925, Mussolini and his party had ended all pretense of democracy. Uh, so this is a five, maybe six-year trajectory here from the official appearance of this fascist organization as a unity of paramilitary groups to the full dismantling of democracy in Italy. The Italian fascist party spent the remainder of the 1920s developing power domestically uh, with several construction projects and trying to promote cultural prestige in Italy with you know, a lot of university and education projects, literature prizes, things like that, but also preparing the ground for major colonial expansions that they would start in the 1930s, specifically in Ethiopia. They also engaged in genocidal colonial violence in Libya and colonial expansion in the Balkans. Now, moving on to what was happening in Germany in the 1920s, it's a relatively similar story with a somewhat slower start. So we got similar origins to the Italian fascist movement. Uh, there were many right-wing groups of paramilitary thugs, mostly comprised of upset veterans of World War I. One of these was the German Workers' Party, known in German by its acronym DAP. This organization was joined by Adolf Hitler, much like Mussolini, a disaffected World War I veteran, in 1919. Adolf Hitler rose in the ranks of this particular organization, eventually succeeding in ousting its original founder, uh, leading to the group to be renamed into the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or the Nazi Party, in 1920. The group continued to grow and expand as a relatively small paramilitary fascist organization until, based on the example of their much more successful southern neighbors in 1922, they thought like, well, hey, if it worked in Italy, it could work in Germany. Why don't we stage, you know, something like a, quote, March on Berlin? This in German history was called the Beer Hall Putsch, in which the Nazi party attempted to take over the government of Munich in Bavaria, uh, which was a total failure. They succeeded in taking over the city's government for uh, approximately one day. Uh, it resulted in several Nazi party members being killed. It resulted in the jailing of Adolf Hitler and several other Nazi party leaders. They were in jail for quite a long time. The Nazi party was deemed illegal in Germany in 1923, and it remained illegal for a long time with the Nazi party members who were not in jail joining various other right-wing political organizations. Eventually, they, that is Hitler and the other Nazis who were jailed for the Beer Hall Putsch, were released in 1924. They convinced the government of Bavaria to legalize their party again in 1925, and then they were back on the saddle, but, you know, several years behind their Italian counterparts. Their expansion throughout the rest of Germany from their base in southern Germany proved much more successful than their attempts at organizing southern Germany. They, they actually always had the least success, the Nazi party that is, uh, in the part of Germany that they had originated. So their expansion into the northern parts of Germany produced a really serious success, uh, a successful strategy mixing paramilitary activity and electoral work, uh, organizing for later German electoral success in the 1930s. But again, that's getting ahead of ourselves. That's next episode. Right now, in the late 1920s, they are growing in power uh, against a really collapsing German electoral center, due in no small part to their failure to respond to the Great Depression, which had hollowed out the German mainstream electoral parties. The key here, though, is that a lot of German conservatives and otherwise right-wing groups were turning toward the Nazi party as an alternative 
to the communists and the socialists. Uh, they were turning toward them as a means of preventing communists and socialists from taking power and saying like, well, if some opposition is going to be in power, if the mainstream cannot hold and we got to move to somebody, well, well, we'll move to these Nazi guys instead of the communists because, you know, obviously the communists are the worst thing that could possibly happen to Germany. And this is a refrain that we're going to hear time and time again uh, throughout these next couple episodes going through fascist history is that, as I've said many times on this podcast, Fascism succeeds in no small part because of the complicity and cooperation of people who aren't fascists, of conservatives and other people on the right wing who see fascism as the lesser of two evils, or maybe just as like a neutral, you know, fellow traveler against the left. So this is where we leave the Nazis at the end of the 1920s. They're swinging up. They're getting much more powerful, but they have not taken state power yet. That is going to have to wait until next episode. Elsewhere in the world, fascist organizations are organizing, well, all over the place. Uh, I'm going to pull out two examples. Um, but this period, the 1920s, is when we see small fascist organizations growing all over the world. We're talking uh, paramilitary organizations like the ones that we see in Germany and Italy, but we're also talking about reading groups, small party groups and affinities uh, in addition to actual political parties. So one example would be the Iron Guard, the Romanian fascist party founded by Condrianu in 1927. Now, the Iron Guard is somewhat distinct from the Italian fascist and German Nazi examples in that its primary base was farmers and students as opposed to mainly organizing amongst World War I veterans, at least at first. But this didn't really distinguish them ultimately from the organization of the German Nazi electorate, which relied pretty heavily on farmers and also on students as well. Another example of early fascist organizing uh, would be the British fascists in 1923, founded by Rotha Lindtorn Orman, a British intellectual dilettante aristocrat who is also relatively unique among early fascists for being female. Now, this fascist organization was also distinguished by being primarily organized around its anti-communism and its anti-socialism, as opposed to its, you know, actual transformative vision of the future. But the point here is that this is an organization founded in 1923 by a, just a British conservative aristocrat who was enamored of Benito Mussolini. Um, and that's the thing that I really want you to take away from this episode, is that in the 1920s, fascism was the rising star in politics, not just in Europe, but throughout the world. People throughout the world, especially people vaguely on the right wing or people who are opposed to the status quo, looked to the example of Mussolini and his fascist organization as a potential future direction for humanity. They saw them as, you know, taking the reins of history away from the Bolsheviks, who were extremely terrifying to most members of the status quo, uh, you know, most people who are actually holding power in government. Recall, of course, that the Bolsheviks had taken power in the Soviet Union, or what would eventually become the Soviet Union under the Bolsheviks, uh, just a little while earlier, you know, at the very end of the 1910s. So the 1920s is also when the Bolsheviks are organizing their own complete reorganization of 
for what eventually becomes Soviet society. So a lot of people turned to fascism and then Nazism in this period as an alternative to Bolshevism. That's what they understood it as, at least. And by as an alternative to Bolshevism, what I mean is that people in power chose to use fascists, to fund them, to work with them, to cooperate with them in order to stop leftist organizing in their country or in neighboring countries that they were worried about. This happened over and over and over again. Fascism happened to gain hold. It happened to gain state power in Italy and to be about to gain state power in Germany in the 1920s, but this was not inevitable. It was the result of decisions made by lots of people, again, especially conservatives and other people on the right wing, in addition to classical liberals who were trying to triangulate against the left and communists. Fascism was not just a feature of Italian or German politics, but of worldwide politics at the time. And it was something that was appealing specifically to a lot of aristocrats, a lot of people in power, um, a lot of extremely wealthy people throughout the world. And that trend of fascism appealing to these people and fascism being useful to mainstream conservatives or mainstream conservatives thinking that they will be capable of using fascism for their own ends is going to be a major hallmark of the remaining history of fascism that I'm going to be covering in the rest of these uh, mini-series episodes. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you like the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. You can follow me on Twitter at Hist of the Right or Fascism15. And you can go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. I can also be reached on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. All right. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week with another continuation of this mini series, the second episode of 100 Years of Fascism, covering the 1930s. <laughs>